you want to open your Bible to Isaiah 66. We'll be there soon enough. We are in a new series uh, beginning this morning. Uh, I want to welcome you. I want to welcome our brothers and sisters uh, in Wilmington. It's good to be back with you. And we're going to be, from this point on to Easter, asking the question, who is Jesus? And this sermon series, I think, is going to be a different kind of practical. Sometimes in messages, there's, you know, we make an effort to give you four things to do, or four ways to improve, or three whatevers. <clears throat> And when that is, a, if that's a first goal, simply meditating on who Jesus is becomes difficult because it doesn't feel innately practical. So this is a different kind of practical. This is like a deep practical. You might say, uh, you know, you have things in your utility drawer. If you need to do something, you reach in, you grab. Those are sort of the practical things that we normally talk about. Uh, the practicality of understanding who Jesus is is like the practicality of learning a life lesson. You know, something that your parents, father and mother have been trying to drill into you for years and years and you finally hold on to it and it sort of informs how you live your life. Well, that's practical too. It's just in a very, very different way. This is what I think is going to be the case is as we, the more carefully we study Christ, the more we understand who he is, that will seep in and bear fruit. So that's going to be our goal. And hopefully it's practical. We're going to start by talking about God, and we're going to look at a whole bunch of passages this morning. Uh, lots of them, a big bundle of them. So we're starting in Isaiah. I, I wrestled, do I teach this out of Isaiah? Do I teach this out of uh, Psalms? Do I teach it out of Jeremiah? Where do I go? Do I... And the truth is, what I'm going to say today could have been taught probably out of 15 or 20 different places in the Bible. It's so, it's so present. It's so true. It's all over the place. So we're going to mostly hang out in Isaiah, but I'm also going to take us to all sorts of places so that you at least say, I get it. It's all over the place. Uncle, I, I want you to feel it. So normally I try, to, I try not to have the habit of making you turn pages. My goal is typically make you turn no more than once. Uh, this time today we're going to be like turning a bunch of times. If, if you don't want to turn the page, they're all going to be on the screen. So you're safe. But I do want you to uh, feel the weight of scripture as we sort of lean in here. So let's start by talking about God. The Bible describes God in a lot of ways. But one of the primary ways, if not the primary way that God is described in Scripture is God as creator. God is the creator. That's how the book starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is creator which means he is preeminent over all creation. It means he is supreme. 
That's the implication of Scripture continually putting forth God as creator, is to establish his supremacy over all things. There are other gods that compete in Scripture, lesser gods. They're not really gods at all, but at times they're given the low title of gods, to which the Lord says, yeah, but I am the creator. I'm supreme. A creator has authority over the things that he creates. We might say that the fact that God made the universe is his credential for being a for his genuine godness. Like what how does the Bible say that God is, is a genuine God? It says it by saying this, he made everything. God made everything. This is Isaiah 66. I'm just going to read a verse and a half. Verse one, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God's a creator. Not only is he a creator, he's so far outside of it. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. He's so far out of creation, earth is like a basketball. That's, I mean, that is the minimizing picture that you're given in here in scripture is all that you and I can conceive is a footstool. It's less than that even in other passages. In other words, For God to be a creator, he is above and outside of creation. He's not dependent upon creation. He's not contingent upon creation. Creation's not part of him so that we are actually, this is God and that's God. No, he's above creation. He's outside of creation. He made it and he's outside of it. He transcends it. He's aloof from it. Not in a relational way, but in a material way. He does not need to be part of creation. He chooses to be part of creation. And through his willingness, he makes himself known to us. But the truth of the matter is that you and I are dependent upon him for his revelation of himself. Because he's outside of creation. We are dependent upon the willingness of God to tell us about himself. Isaiah 55 says it this way, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's saying, well, you can't understand what I'm trying to do unless I actually tell you. I have to tell you how to understand me. The sole application of your reason and intellect is entirely inadequate to attain God, to describe him, to understand him. You can't do it. This is, we need to hear this, right? The entire age of enlightenment, all the way into the 20th century, the big ivory, the big arrogant ivory tower of reason bows before the Lord. 
It cannot know him except for what God has willingly shown us. Our reason and intellect are fine inside the system of earth. and Inside of creation, God, God made us in his image. And our reason and intellect are part of that. The ability to see things and make sense of things seen. But we cannot make sense of things unseen. And for a God who is outside of the system, all we can deal with is what he chooses to show us. A lot of damage has been done in understanding who Jesus is, I think, by a enlightened insistence on fully understanding things. We can't do it. Why would we ever think we could fully understand the divine person? What the Bible is going to do is get, God will give us views of himself that we need, to, we need to receive and hold on to. It's not all of him. How could we, the created, understand the creator? There's an account in the book of Job. Job was a great guy. He was a righteous and good man. He's about the, night, the best guy in the Bible, okay? He's a, he serves as a great example of holy living and became sort of put on the table between a wager between the Lord and the devil. I'm paraphrasing very quickly here, but the devil challenged the Lord and said, well, Job is good only because things are going well for him. And so the Lord said, well, are you saying that if things didn't go that well for him, he wouldn't be that good? And the devil said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and so God said, well, have at it. Just don't take his life. Watch my righteous son. And the devil went at it took his farm, took his produce, took his wealth, took his family, took his wife, took his health, took his friends. Until at the end, Job is nothing but like a, a, a pulse and a cry to the Lord. How? I mean, you think you have, we have, we've had it bad, right? People in their life, you've had it bad. I'm not trying to diminish the bad you've had, but I, I will say, read Job. Job had it bad. And so finally, towards the end of the story of Job, God shows up, and not in a gentle way that we might want, because we're thinking, well, Job is a good man. He's earned. He's earned. God's not like combing his hair or like holding him. Like It's a whirlwind. God shows up as a whirlwind. And in, the, in Job, you sort of feel a question rising, as any of us might have the question. A question, of how, did, how did you let, why did you let this happen to me? Is wanting to come out of Job, okay? And before it comes out of Job, the whirlwind speaks like this. This is what he says. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's saying this to Job. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? 
or who laid its cornerstone? When were the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Do you know what, you know what the Lord does? To the non-understanding Job, as bad as his life is, to the non-understanding Job, what the Lord does is says, before you ask me a question, acknowledge that you have no idea who I am. Acknowledge that I'm above and outside and aloof. I transcend and I am the creator of everything, of everything. And he doesn't stop there. Actually, the Lord's, it's a throwdown. The Lord says it a long time. Look at this. Let me know when you're done reading that. Okay. That's the rest of chapter 38. And he's still not done. He goes into 39. Okay. And then in 40, Job sort of says, I don't have any more questions. And the Lord says, you're darn right. You don't have any more questions. And he heads back into it. And in 41, he does it. And in 42, at the very end of 42, the Lord says, There. Got anything, Job? And Job says, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Why? Because God revealed himself to Job, and Job saw God is above and outside. He's aloof, he transcends, and he's created everything. God sees the beginning from the end, and the end from the beginning. He sees everything, everything, because he's outside of it. And the only thing that you and I can even know about God is given to us willingly by God. We are absolutely dependent on God for a revelation of God. Because he alone is the creator and he's outside of us. The modernist conception that reality will prostrate itself to the sole application of reason and intellect, it's not just wrong, it's arrogant. We are called to know the God that is revealed to us. I'll show you another passage. Isaiah 45. Again, if if you're a turner, you can turn. If you're a watcher, you can watch. Isaiah 45. This is just several verses, five through eight, but you'll hear it again. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. You hear these themes? That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let salvation and righteousness, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. There's two things we see in this passage that is all over the word, but they, they, they show up here nicely. First of all, God alone is God. So in scripture, the Lord leans on his capacity as creator, not simply to say he's God, but to demonstrate he's the only God. In various places in the Bible, God will talk about these lesser gods, and he'll say, why do you bow down to these lesser gods, which you had to carve out of stone or wood or forge from iron or silver, and you have to carry them with you? 
You're bowing to something that you're carrying around with you that doesn't even have feet and can't walk. He says, I'm above that. I made the wood and the stone and the iron and the silver. I made the fire for the forge. I alone am God because I alone am creator. Also in this passage, and it shows up in a kind of beautifully metaphoric way with verse eight, he says a shower from the heavens and the earth. And he's talking about showering righteousness and giving and, and salvation sprouting from the ground. But he's capturing the fact that not only is he creator and not only is he the only creator, but he continues in the creative process by sustaining creation. He makes the rain continually fall. He makes the plants continually sprout. He is as involved in the continuing cycle of life as he was in its institution. He alone. You see this in the Hebrew traditions, uh, the commandment of the Sabbath. The first time the Sabbath is given to us in the Ten Commandments, why are they to rest? Because God is creator. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Therefore, you rest. And why do they rest? Because God brings provision. You rest as an act of faith to me. Why do they tithe? Because God brings the increase. That's why they tithe. This idea of resting and tithing to the Lord is a way of saying, not only did you make the earth, but you sustain the earth. You and you alone. Very practically, this shows up in the life of uh, the Jewish people. They, how, how they pray, how they approach the Lord. If your God is the only God, and if he is the creator of everything, then you can go to him in the worst of times with hope. When everything inside the system would say there's no hope, you can look, we, we are given the right to look to the revealed God who's outside of the system for hope. This is an example. This is Isaiah 37. Hezekiah is a good and godly king. He and Jerusalem are surrounded by a terrible, large army led by a man named Sennacherib. There's no hope here, okay? Sennacherib, in fact, is scoffing the Hebrew God because it's so obvious that he's monologuing is what he's doing. He's the villain who's monologuing. And, you know, how inevitable their doom is and how, you know, hopeless it is. He's doing this. And you know what Hezekiah does? Well, actually, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, pray. And Hezekiah turns to the Lord and says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, and all of the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear and listen to me. And listen to him. The fact that God is creator is at the base root of why you and I can pray with hope. When God brought the Egyptians out of Israel, he went in and systematically toppled all of their gods through every plague. That's not God, and that's not God, and that's not God, and that's not God. At first, the Egyptian priests could duplicate it. You know, Moses turns the water into blood, they could do that. The, the stick falls, turns into a snake, they could do that. By the end, they were like, we can't do this. 
Only he is God over all creation. It's a fundamental source of their faith. It's the basis. It really is enough to worship God perfectly. What is the basis upon which Adam was supposed to worship God? I mean, you and I understand the Lord through sort of a redemptive narrative, through a salvation narrative, through the fact that he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's sort of the narrative we have, but that is not, that's another narrative. It's an additional narrative. It's an additional revelation of God. Adam had God as creator, and that should have been enough. Should have been enough. Worship me because I made you and everything. I made this good garden and I placed you in it. It is enough for us. When I was thinking about it, and it's all over, it's all over this Bible, God as creator. Earlier this week, somebody sent me a psalm. Hey, maybe you should read this psalm. I forget what psalm it was. It was in the 100s, and there's this creation narrative, and I was like, wow. So then I went to the psalm on either side of it, and I found, oh, it's there too. So I went to the praise psalms. I said, let me go to the praise psalms. So I went to Psalm 94 and it was there. And I went to Psalm 95 and it was there. And 96 it was there. 97 it was there. All of these psalms referencing God by nature of the fact that he's creator. 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 100. I went, well, I'll go to the end of the Bible. 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. All of them praise the Lord because he alone is God and made the world. It's enough. God made everything, therefore he is God alone. That's the point. God alone is creator. He alone is God. And we are dependent upon him for his willing revelation of himself. All right, one more turn, turn to John, the Gospel of John chapter one. Oh, before you go there, I'll give you one more. There's one more. The very end of the Bible, I was thinking, well, I understand that's enough for Adam. God is creator. So I know, you're gonna say, uncle, we get it. Just one more. It should be enough for Adam, and it's enough in the Psalms. I was just curious, what does it look like? What does worship look like in the throne room of heaven? So I went to Revelation. Revelation is John's testimony of a vision he sees, where he sees the throne room of God. And in Revelation chapter 4, John looks at the throne room of God. And in the throne room of God is the throne, God, the host, the heavenly hosts all around it. And you have these multitudes and angels, and in sort of the inner circle are these elders and these creatures. And what are they saying? You want to know what they're saying? This is what they're saying. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns. One day you and I can do this. We'll cast our crowns before the Lord and we'll say, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? because you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. 
the whole Bible. God created, and therefore, God alone is God. Okay, now you can go to John. John is, we are fairly, fairly confident, is the last of the four Gospels written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Good thinking uh, deduces that it was written fairly late in the life of John. Uh, and it has about it, it has about it, an approach to the life of Christ and who Jesus is that seems to want to resolve. John is resolving things that maybe were unsettled about Jesus. Now, John is a God-fearing, monotheistic Jew who knows his Bible. Okay? Let me just read the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who is Jesus? Now, I want to put on hold a few words. We'll deal with the word in a few weeks. A little bit later, we'll deal with the idea of Father, Son, Okay, these are additional revelations that God is giving us about himself. Okay, but just, and I know you might say, well, that's an easy question. I know who Jesus is. It says the word was with God. The word, by the way, is Jesus, okay? The whole book is about Jesus. So Jesus is traveling inside of this word, the word. It says he was with God. He was God. And then how does, he, how does John validate that statement? He says, he created everything. He created everything. Nothing that, nothing, that's, nothing that is here is here without the word making it. Now, you could let John just stand on its own. I mean, it's clear enough on its own. But if you were to examine the entirety of Scripture and gain for yourself a scriptural momentum of what God means when God says he alone creates, which means he alone is God, there's there's quite a bow wave of revelation that shows up at this moment. No one can create but God. Not in the cosmic sense, at least. John even starts his gospel in the beginning. (laughs) I mean, you don't even have to know the Bible that well to feel that one. In the beginning. The preeminence and the rank and the supremacy that God has is the preeminence and the rank and the supremacy that Jesus has. 
read another verse for you. Verse 14. This is the startling part, right? The, John starts in a startling fashion and, and sort of by the end of this prologue, it's double, it's just as startling in the other way. <laughs> he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So you and I are dependent upon the Lord to reveal himself and he willingly reveals himself. And when the Lord, the creator, the only true God, the God who is the only God because he is the creator, chooses to reveal himself through Jesus. He says, Jesus is a creator. Jesus is God. And yet Jesus is man. He's just like Adam. He's just like you. He's just like me. God has chosen to reveal himself to us in Jesus, who is God and is incarnate in the flesh. Now, I know we know these, I know many in this room know this. It's one thing to know it as an answer. I grew up in church. I grew up with all these answers. It's another thing to sit in it. Jesus is not just a symbol. Jesus is not a phantom. Jesus is not a, an idea. Jesus is not, as someone would suppose, a good thought or a nice picture or a metaphor or an allegory of what love looks like or a hope of what forgiveness could be like. Jesus is God who came and became man. That's what is being said here. And there's, you know, when the church grabs at it, it's like pulling the pin out of a grenade. There's all of this scholarship and work. There's this ocean of academia that needs to invent big words like Trinity. It's one time you're going to hear it this whole sermon series, okay? Or big fancy Greek words to figure out like essence or same essence and, and, and all of this. I would say this. We as God's children cannot know God except for the revelation he gives us. And this is what he's giving us. Is God creator became flesh. And he is called Jesus. You know, one thought when we just think about it, does the Jesus Christ that we read of in the scriptures exhibit the power and influence and preeminence over creation that we might expect if in fact he was creator God? Does he? I was thinking all through the stories, all through the miracles of Christ, right? Remember the, the paralyzed man, they lower down through the roof. They lower him down. He's there paralyzed. Jesus sees the faith of his fellows. And he says to the man, your, your sins are forgiven. To which the leaders and the scribes hear that and they go, whoa, you can't say that. Only God can say that. And they're absolutely right. <laughs> Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is exactly what they say, by the way. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, well, they say it in their hearts. Jesus, perceiving what they were saying in their hearts, says to them, will you tell me this? Which is more difficult to say? Your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your mat and go home. 
but so that you might know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say, get up and go home. And he rose and went. Jesus has power over the human condition. Jesus arrives and finds people spiritually possessed by demons. He he demonstrates his power over the spirit world. Jesus arrives. There's thousands upon thousands of people sitting on a hillside starting to get hungry. He's got a basket of bread and a couple of fish. He feeds them all because Jesus is preeminent over the realm of provision. He gets in a boat. The waves rise up. The wind is Daring to tear the boat apart, he says, be still. Why? Because Jesus is preeminent over the elements of this world. Jesus comes to a tomb with a man inside who's been rotting dead for four days and says, come out. Why? Because Jesus is preeminent over death. Because he alone is God and he is a creator. When you pray, this is who you pray to. Our prayers do not stay in the system we call the world. They go to God. He hears us. We pray in the name of Christ because Christ is God. And Christ is preeminent and supreme over all creation. Says it. Says in Colossians. Says it in Hebrews. We're going to be reading them all, all month. It's my prayer that we do not lean on our intellect to understand a God who calls us by faith. And that at some level, at a very deep level, we exercise worship by receiving the revelation we're given. God never commands us to fully understand him. He's not waiting around for us to fully understand him. God commands us to worship him. And he's shown us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna pray. If you'll bow your heads. And Lord, I'm coming to you. We're coming to you. to meet you and I lift up Lord anyone here who has not can't be has not been at home with what to do with Jesus has been living in the realm of Jesus is a good man or a wise teacher or even a prophet but has not yet been able to bow a knee to the supremacy of his lordship and Lord we we in we will come to know you and study you as savior and as redeemer and even as friend. Uh, But now we worship you as God alone. Which is why you hear our prayers. I pray, Lord, that over these weeks, that as a fellowship we might turn back into the word 
and not simply think about you as we drive, not simply trust in our reason and intellect to have good and righteous thoughts about God, Lord, but to understand that we need to enslave ourselves to your revelation so that we might know you as you would be known. In Jesus' name, amen.